Uh, also, uh, and if for anyone listening, I do apologise. In the background, I will cut out as much as possible, but you may hear me just coughing like a <laughs> madman. I have a very chesty cough at the moment, so if you do hear that throughout, I do apologise. It it does crop up periodically. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a history podcast on Second World War, Prison of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave, the history nerd. And by me, Dave, the tech geek. And today we're going to be looking at a gentleman called Lieutenant Michael G. Duncan, uh, which, you know, we, we have, a, we have a, a history of really strong names with the people that we look at here. We do. And while Michael Duncan, not the strongest name that we've ever had, we still have the mystery of the middle G. We don't actually know what it stands for. Not a clue. Um, so that could, you know, still playing strong in the in the mystery game for for, for the name. I, you know, I vote for Gertrude. That is a very very strong choice. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going for Gillian. Gillian, nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so what I suppose you know, what do we know about Lieutenant Michael G. Duncan? Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in the fourth battalion of the Ox and Bucks Light, in, Light Infantry. Uh, regiment, which uh, <coughs> having originally been from Oxford, makes a lot of sense. Yep. Uh, his peacetime profession was as an advertising manager. Now, this might seem a bit weird, but for some reason, I always thought that that was not a post-war job, but the sort. Of, do you know what I mean? It's like the sort of job that didn't exist that back. I was what you mean. Then. You didn't really consider it before the war as an actual profession sort of yeah like yeah i understand you know how you get like middle managers these days where it's like it's basically a made-up job title yeah yeah. and they're just making up to justify it for some reason i just always thought of (laughs) advertising (laughs) managers like the sort of you know the sort of pre-war job you know it's it's not like he's chimney sweep or something like that (laughs) Um, I suppose it was because I, I I would probably associate it with Mad Men, which is very sixties. Right. Okay, yeah. Um, I and mean, so, so when I saw advertising managers, ah, that's actually kind of cool. So he he was in the territorial army for seven years, uh, which uh, helps to explain his capture a little bit actually, um, because he was part of the British Expeditionary Force in 1940. Uh, so a lot of the British Expeditionary Force, which was the initial, well, mixed services, I suppose, that were sent over to France during the Phony War, during the early part of the war, mm-hmm. uh, were made up of territorials and um, the standing army, the you know the regulars. Right. At, at this stage of the war, so we're talking about May 1940, conscription had started, actually kicked off um, oh, yeah. wow. very okay. early in the war. I think it was uh, September 1939. So it was one of the very... Uh, very early pieces of legislation that was passed through Parliament was to establish the Conscription Act. That's that's earlier than I thought it would have been. Earlier than I thought it was actually until I uh, did my research for this. <laughs> and that's uh, why I like you. you do the research and then you just tell me. Yes, exactly. And then, <laughs> then act like I know it all. Yeah. But yes, a, a lot a lot of territorials were called up almost immediately after the uh, declaration of war mm-hmm. in September 1939, which is why by May 1940. Uh, uh, Michael Duncan was in France uh, right. serving and he was serving in Castle which is northeast France uh, near the Belgian border sort of due south of Dunkirk roughly um, and he was part of uh, he was captured during you know as part of the retreat to Dunkirk yeah. 
so he was he was although uh, he was in castle and, and what have you, he was actually captured at a place a place I pr- presume is pronounced Watu. That's what it looks like, yeah. Which is on the Belgian side yeah. of the French Belgian border, uh, about th- about thirty kilometers southeast of Dunkirk. Um, so not far, um, but not within dashing distance either. Um, so yeah, he was captured there as part of the, as I said, part of the retreat to Dunkirk, where um, the rescue operation was taking place, certainly by this stage, and he was captured on the 30th of May. basically surrounded, and uh, they surrendered and rounded up at Watu in Belgium. I'm As I say, I'm presuming that's how it's pronounced, W-A-T-O-U. So his report kind of skirts over his early imprisonment quite quickly. We we very rapidly reach the point of his escape after quite you know quite often these reports will go through in depth and in detail every single part of their imprisonment yeah. their captivity yeah, yeah. uh this one doesn't really he kind of says that he was taken to um a prison camp in laufen uh l-a-u-f-e-n so i'm gonna pronounce it laufen in germany uh, which he reached at the end of June, having been captured 30th of May, he uh, reached life in at the end of June, and he remained there until March 1941. And he doesn't say much about his time there, but what he does say is that he made a number of attempted escapes, chiefly by tunnels, of which three or four were made, but none of the attempts were successful. Which is, I think, is incredible because he moves on to basically the story of his escape shortly after this, like you say. But he's just like. Yeah, yeah, I tried a few times. We all got caught. We just move on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what I suppose what's interesting for me is, you know, these are almost like practice. Yeah. Um, you know, he he had experience of trying to escape before his final attempt. You know, he's talking about having tried three or four times already. Obviously, he doesn't provide much detail on precisely how each of them went, but... no. I think we can safely assume that there is an element of practice, trial and error, I suppose, so that when he gets to the final effort, the experience was there. He knew what he wanted to do and he knew how he wanted to go about it because he had made his mistakes previously. Yeah, and and it also speaks to something we've mentioned before in other episodes of, of that mentality of he knew immediately from the beginning he was escaping. Yes, yeah, exactly, which uh, there is a certain mindset that seems to come... Yeah. Uh, with being an escapee. Uh, So from Laufen, he was actually um, moved to Stalag 21D, which is in Posen. What was then Posen, what is now Poznan in Poland. Okay. Um, So this this is actually quite interesting, um, which he gives very little detail about, actually, in in his report. He goes into a little bit more in his book. Um, And there's kind of two things I want to pick up on. First of all, his book is called Underground Front Posen, which is interesting for the mere fact that his final successful escape was not from the camp in Posen. Yeah, I was going to question that, yeah. So it's a little bit of an odd title, his choice, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I always thought, I, I assumed before I read the book, before I read this report, that on the basis of the title of the book, that his escape was from Posen. However, um... That is not the case. It was from another camp, which we'll obviously come to later. So, 
odd title of book. Yeah, it's it's an odd yeah, it's an odd choice. Yeah. The other reason why he was moved to Posen, which as I say, he doesn't go into too much detail, but he does make reference to here. So he says, uh, on the eighth of March, nineteen forty-one, from Laufen, we were transferred to the Equality Camp Stalag Twenty-One D as a reprisal for the alleged ill treatment of German officer prisoners of war in Fort Henry, Canada. So it's not an issue that I know intimately well, but it is referenced a lot to in a lot of the reports in a lot of the books and in the history so essentially uh the germans got report of mistreatment of german prisoners of war in canada and as a reprisal for that they essentially started mistreating allied prisoners of war okay in germany yeah um things like uh putting prisoners into handcuffs and chains uh, which was contrary to the Geneva Convention. Uh, you were not allowed to do this unless they were under arrest. Yeah. Um, so you certainly couldn't chain a prisoner ward down um, against human rights and that mm. sort of thing. And this was all done as part of reprisals of this report that German prisoners had been mistreated in Canada. However, if I remember correctly, it was a false report. Right. So okay. Allied prisoners of war were mistreated on the basis of a false report. And so he basically says that, you know, we, we were um, provided with writing paper to send home to our families and we were told to say that our treatment was appalling, all this sort of stuff. Um, however, they, they ended up writing how what a great time they were having and how fabulous their treatment was and the German... Uh, guards essentially just ripped up their letters and didn't send them. I will admit, when I first read that in the report, I didn't really understand why that was. Yeah. Like, why, why I didn't understand why them saying they were being treated really well would upset the Germans. Yes, it, it's an odd reference unless you're familiar with yeah. it. Um, in, interesting point here. It says, uh, it was in Posen that I first began, along with Captain O'Sullivan, uh, to consider seriously the possibility of escape. For someone who's already made three or four attempts say, by yeah. tunnel to escape, that, that <laughs> seems quite a bold statement. Yeah, uh, Maybe they were just for fun. Yeah, he's, um, you know, he, he wasn't taking it too seriously before. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, to be fair, he seemed to have made a, a couple of efforts from uh, posing, you know, hiding in the rubbish as it was being removed by orderlies. Um, three people had already succeeded that way, so it was worth a shot. Um, however, uh, they were eventually they were moved uh, from Posen to their next camp and final camp uh, after only three months there. So they moved uh, there in June nineteen forty one. Yeah, and kind of kind of going back to the point about how they were sort of inveterate escapers. And yeah, know, I, I actually uh, love this one. <laughs> ha- having already made four attempts, he yeah. now started to you know take escape seriously. In his words. Uh, on the train from uh, Posen to their new camp at Biberach, um, again, assuming pronunciation, uh, at Biberach in Germany, uh, southwest Germany, um, on the train there, they uh, actually made an, an, an additional impromptu escape attempt um, by cutting a hole through the floorboards of the carriage, as you do. And, and- I, I don't understand how they got away with that one. Yeah, I, I, a train is a finite space. Surely they were being watched. Yeah, you would you would think so, but then I, I suppose if you kind of sit, yeah, I, I, sit in a circle. I, I love the effort. It's an it's an amazing effort to just be like, I've really started to think seriously about escape. Yes. No, I mean right now. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's just jump out the floor. Let's do this. Um, 
However, you know, the, the understatement is glorious here. Unfortunately, one member of the party jumped out prematurely at midday on the second day and was spotted by the guards. Uh, as a result of this, the journey to Beberach was speeded up and we had no further option to, <laughs> es- to escape before reaching the camp. Um, glorious understatement for someone who threw themselves out of a moving train. Yes. And also I like the fact that it implies that they weren't, they weren't taken out of the carriage, they weren't arrested... They just moved the train faster to make yeah. it impossible to jump out. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, fair enough. Yeah. However, what, what is, I suppose, interesting for the final escape is that the group of um, officers that had kind of formed the nucleus of uh, the escape attempt from the train ultimately formed the nucleus of the escape attempt from his final camp. Yeah. Uh, uh, and in actual fact, it, it, it was a large final effort. I mean, I'll, I'll go into more detail later on, but in the... You know the the final escape was by tunnel, and they actually managed to get twenty six um, prisoners of war out uh, from this effort, which is actually a pretty it's, large, yeah, it's quite a large number. Um, so yeah, they, it was actually one of the uh, larger mass escape attempts of the war that uh, Michael Duncan escaped from, and he he was certainly one of, if not the mastermind behind it, mm-hmm. and. I, su- I suppose what what's interesting for me, and you know, I'm I'm always actually quite reluctant to make too many cross references between the Great Escape, as it is known, yeah. and other escapes. But I have to say, on this one, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah, yeah, a lot of parallels, and I will pick up on them more. But in actual fact, it, it got to the point where I was actually kind of starting to wonder if there was some sort of genesis <laughs> of what became the Great Escape in this escape right that's what and you mean I'll, as i say i'll draw out i'll draw them out more and more as i go along but i just kind of wanted to place that in into the conversation at this stage so first and foremost he says that uh, we decided that the best place for beginning the tunnel was uh one of the barrack bungalows which was only six feet from the perimeter of the barbed wire now when we discussed the wooden horse escape we talked about the need to kind of shorten the distance yeah and the difference that would make and so by choosing a, a barrack that's only six feet from the perimeter wire you're instantly cutting short the, the potential distance, the you, potential need to distance yeah, yeah. you need to dig and all the spoil that you have to then distribute and all that sort of stuff and i suppose you know we're still talking about relatively early in the war you know this is only a year after the occupation of france uh dunkirk it's technically 18 months into the war but the first nine months or so was kind of the phony war so we're only yeah. talking about about a year into the war proper if you like so we're mm-hmm. still early on in the sort of levels of sophistication of escape also the sophistication of security from the captor's side yeah yeah, yeah. and so you know kind of it it stuck out to me the fact that there was actually a barracks as close as six feet to the perimeter I, I, wire because that certainly was not the case in later camps i did think that as well i thought that was very close uh, and, and you know he also says right at the end of the paragraph we managed to get a small room in this block for the five of us yeah, I don't know how how they managed to do that because surely the placement of where people were was not up to them. No, but then if I remember correctly, they were part of the first group that, or early on into the move into a new camp, uh, and so and also I suppose you know um, some of the reports and some of the books talk about how essentially cooped up with the same people in the same room for yeah. weeks, months, years on end. Eventually, you just kind of got a bit sick and tired of each other and so it wasn't uncommon for people to be willing to kind of move rooms a bit just to kind of mix up 
the company if people were starting to get on their nerves they might want to go and move into one of their mates rooms and so well, moving and that's, around that's something they had the power to do to move around within the room i suppose it was probably in the power of the senior british officer to make that decision mm-hmm. but it was kind of in his interest not to block it too much right okay it was more i i, I guess it's my ignorance of not fully understanding that i i was surprised all five of the people who were in this team who were determined to escape together managed to get in the same room i thought maybe you know, maybe the germans would be like no we're assigning you places you don't go there you don't go there no i don't think the germans made a great deal of effort to assign right okay. uh, as far as they were concerned as long as the correct number were there then they weren't that bothered about it yeah didn't it. really care where they stayed okay um, Certainly the senior British officer usually had their own room to themselves. And then after that, I think most of them were sharing, unless you had someone very senior. Right. I'll touch upon it briefly here, because it is in the report, but he talks about there being another party uh, digging the tunnel around the same time. Yeah. At this stage, that's not too big a deal, other than the fact that they clash. And But it, it, come, it comes back into relevance later on in the escape attempt. But the, I suppose the key point here is that they had to run both the tunnels by the escape committee yes which really highlights the role of the escape committee in, disca- in deciding the priorities and the escape priorities of, of the camp and within the camp so you essentially had to get these escape attempts passed by the escape committee they had to give the green light if they didn't give the green light it was considered effectively insubordination because the escape committee was there under the power of the senior british officer so if you disobeyed the ruling of the escape committee you were in effect disobeying the uh, power of the senior British officer who was a senior rank mm-hmm. and it's literally in the name yeah, yeah <laughs> um, of course and so that would be a court-martial offense in effect and so the fact that there was two tunnels going on around about the same time with competing teams and all that sort of stuff it actually kind of highlights the um role and I'll I'll, re- I'll read out the extract so um at that at that type of party which had arrived before us uh, had already started tunneling from a deep latrine uh, their intention was to come up just beyond the road, uh, which is roughly the same location that Michael Duncan's escape was to uh, appear. Um, at first, the escape committee would not allow us to begin until the first tunnel was either completed or discovered. After about a fortnight, uh, we were allowed to go ahead with our scheme and began digging in Block 6 about the 24th of June. Uh, so as I say, you know, you've got two competing efforts. Yeah. Uh, the other one had started first, so was given priority. However... Uh, they ultimately allowed both to go on together. Um, I actually really love that paragraph, uh, and I'm sure this is part of what you're going to go into later, because it shows you... Uh, we've covered it a little bit, and in conversation about the inner workings of how how everything worked within the structure, mm. within the camps. But a lot of these reports are quite, this is my story, this is what's happening to me. Whereas that gives you an insight to the inner workings of how the whole structure of the, of... The hierarchy. The, the hierarchy, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to think of. And I, I think that's incredible. Yes, no, exactly. And it's, I mean, ultimately, they are still serving military men. Mm-hmm. And so they still had to function within the military system. And so they still had to function within the military hierarchy under which they were serving. Yeah. Um, and this kind of feeds into the whole duty to escape concept, which duty to escape was essentially the idea that as a serving officer you were even if you were a prisoner of war you weren't 
you hadn't been discharged, therefore you had a duty to continue to serve, in inverted commas. Now, you may not be on the front line, so there were other ways you could do that, and one way of doing that was to continue to escape. Right. And this was certainly a common or popular idea and concept amongst uh, prisoners of war in general, certainly the wider services, um, and often in the books and reports afterwards, they do talk about the duty to escape, and there are many references to it. Uh, the only problem with that is that it was an entire fabrication as such, uh, <laughs> created by the intelligence services to encourage people to escape. There's right. absolutely, so far as I'm aware, there's absolutely no reference to a duty to escape within the King's regulations, which was the guide, guidelines for the services and the behaviour of servicemen while <laughs> serving in the military was the King's regulations. So, so, so far as I'm aware, there's no reference to a duty to escape within the king's regulations at that time so it was just kind of added in just to sort of keep people escaping and and sort of keep a thorn in the side to the germans and keep morale up and probably a multitude of reasons as i say in essence the intelligence services were um going around giving lectures to encourage people and uh, educate people on how to escape and were providing assistance and there is evidence within this report actually that the intelligence services were providing assistance to escapes but as part of that they really encouraged this idea of a duty to escape but it was in essence their fabrication and uh. I, I use the word fabrication advisedly they yeah. encouraged the concept that may or may not have been an actuality shall we say so you know they started digging and again the the he doesn't go into a lot of detail on the actual digging of the tunnel. Um, you know, there's only one paragraph on it, and he basically says, we started on the 24th of June and finished on the September the 11th, having got to the point where we wanted to be. Um, and it it was actually quite a sophisticated tunnel that they dug. Cause, yeah, because from the description I saw, there's like different chambers and things, aren't there? And There are, and this again is another comparator to the great escape as was in that uh, both had sort of uh, chambers to mark out what in the great escape they called halfway houses although technically they had two of these halfway houses which <laughs> meant that it was technically sort of thirds they had two enlarged chambers to allow sort of changes of personnel to for you know ease of movement for in this case for change actual change of direction of the tunnel itself in the sense that because they had to go through a small hill, they actually started tunnelling up quite early on, so it was kind of a gentle slope, so they actually put a chamber in to mark the bottom of the slope. Right, okay. Uh, ah, yes, and that's one of the other points, actually, was um, this tunnel started underneath a stove in, the, in their room in the hut, which, again, at least one of the three tunnels in The Great Escape... I uh, can't remember if it was Tom, Dick or Harry, but one of the three tunnels did start underneath a stove, yeah. which had been uh, chipped through the concrete that formed the base of the stove. And then they dug down and, as I say, started building these chambers. And it was actually quite a sophisticated um, tunnel, as opposed to just a sort of short, sharp you know, in, in the wooden horse, when we talked about the wooden horse escape, the tunnel itself was actually fairly basic. Yeah, it was they just a, a straight line, effectively. Yeah, they didn't really do a lot of shoring up with water, with wood. As you say, it was a very straight line, and then they just kind of poked a hole up at the other end and got, yeah. got out. And so, yeah, you, you can see what I mean about the various 
enlarged chambers so that yeah. marking um, milestones, I suppose, you know, ma- major uh, milestones al- along the tunnel. And again, this is kind of it's a bit of a precursor to what became the Great Escape and how how that worked. You know, you've got you've got the tunnel starting under the stove, chipping through the concrete base, digging the tunnel down. It's elongated. It's a very long tunnel, so they're putting in these uh, these chambers to mark the major milestones along the way. Um, and that there are more, you know. Um, and yet, it's it's worth remembering that the Great Escape didn't take place for another three years at this point, two and a half, three years. And so we're not talking about sort of. There's no overlap here. <laughs> and would this escape have been known to the people involved in the great? Like, so that that's what I'm wondering at this stage. I I don't know. Oh, right. Is the honest answer. You know, there were 26 people who escaped. Four got back, so that means there were 22 who were unsuccessful. So I don't know if one of those 22 went on to be part of the great escape. Yeah. Or even did the people involved in this escape not necessarily just the 22, but the wider. Um, people involved that they go on to other uh, camps whereby they, they did work together with what became the Great Escape because there were precursors. You know, Roger Bushel, who was in charge of the Great Escape, was in camps beforehand and was yeah. in charge of similar organisations. So, did he work with people who worked on this? At this stage, I genuinely don't know. I need to do a lot more research on that. And it'd be, it'd be very cool if he had heard of this before and used it as a as a inspiration towards his idea. It's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility. But I have, at the point of recording, <laughs> no concrete evidence to prove this. It's yeah. just there's a lot of similarities. Uh, so I'll, I'll keep reading on because um, again, he talks. He then. You know, after describing the tunnel very briefly, he actually goes into far more detail on the building of it and the the uh, mechanisms and the mechanics of it. So for tools, uh, the key part here is for uh, you know he's, he talks about for getting through the reinforced concrete floor, we used a piece of iron and a double sided hacksaw blade, which you know as I said, you know one of the tunnels in the Great Escape was through the base of a stove that was based upon concrete and yep. they, they hammered through the concrete before they started digging down through the soil. He then talks about earth removal. For removing earth from the tunnel we had two trolleys of wood and a tin on runners. Uh, the system was for the man at the face to fill a trolley which was then pulled back to the chamber by a man lying there. He emptied it into a second trolley which then pulled back into the room where the earth was put into Red Cross cardboard boxes and, and, dis- and ultimately distributed. Um, again that you know, the trolley system running on runners through the middle of the tunnel to a chamber. This all happened three years later and is made famous, you know, by the Great Escape. But this was happening three years prior to that in this escape. Lighting using electrical lights from, you know, wired up to the electrical system of the camp itself. Again, you know, yeah. people associate the Great Escape with great sophistication, but this was happening three years earlier ventilation they again talk about providing ventilation uh by forcing air down the tunnel uh working bells of wooden and sheets uh, you know ground sheets um sending it down a pipe that was extendable that would go to the face so that they were getting fresh air yeah again this this yeah yeah, stuff that is you know automatically associated with the with the great escape but was happening here three years previously again timber you know shoring up of the extensive shoring up of the tunnel which you know some of them kind of shored up difficult points but uh, not necessarily the entire 
tunnel, but on, on this case, they certainly did it extensively, if not entirely. In fact, there, there's another two major comparisons that we can make here from this report. You know, in the he talks about the disposal of Earth. Now, the, there's one very big difference that they uh, did here between what would take place three years later. Uh, in that, um, in this escape, the uh, the difference is that they stored the spoil in the roof space. Yeah. Um, but the similarity is he had uh, he, he he describes you know to simplify matters we had a team of storage staff entirely separate from the digging party, and again you know in the Great Escape they had. A digging team. They yeah. had uh, people in uh, responsible for security, so keeping an eye on the German guards so that they weren't getting too near to the tunnels being dug at the time. Mm-hmm. But they, they also had an entire team, what they called penguins, um, because of the shuffling movement that they made when they were walking <laughs> with um, the soil in their trousers. Yeah. But what they essentially did in order to dispose of the spoil from the Great Escape was they had the soil down their trousers and they released the soil in a pocket, sort of little pocket, and they would come out the bottom of their trousers and yeah. they'd scuffle it into the uh, earth. Now, that is different to how they disposed of the earth in this one, but the concept of having an entirely separate team dedicated to distributing and uh, disposing of the earth that came out of the tunnel is not actually that common, but there's right. no, the, there's a very definite... It's almost like a precursor to it. In this one, they talk about uh, having a team dedicated to keeping an eye on the German guards that yeah. were um, what later became uh, known as the pilot system. Not sure why, um, mm. but it, it was. Um, they talk about a similar thing whereby they have, uh, as soon as any German entered the camp, an outside guard went to the washroom window and reported the fact to an inside guard, uh, guards in this case being uh, allies yeah, uh, yeah. who were guarding against, against in- investigation German, yeah. by the uh, German counters. Not, not, not the camp guards who were looking out for it. Precisely, yes. Uh, they basically just talked for a wall, didn't they, towards the, to each other? Yeah, essentially, or, or you know, uh, communicated through knocks, that yeah. sort of stuff. Um Sorry, can I just uh, just one point, one line I really liked, mm. just on the Earth disposal. Uh, just just sort of uh, the risks that they were playing the whole time when they were doing this. Is a uh, by the time the digging was complete, there was no space left in the roof at all. So they'd filled a whole roof space. Yeah, and the ceiling was showing cracks, which, however, were not noticed by the Germans. Yes. So there was so much excess weight up there from the dirt that they put up there. The ceiling was approaching collapse. Yes, yeah, it must have been literally tons. Yeah, and I, I just sort of the risks that they were playing the whole time. I thought I found that I, I loved that little detail of just like yeah. it was actually cracking. Yeah, luckily nobody saw it. Yeah, luckily no one was hurt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> going back to the sort of um, the guard system and keeping an eye on them. Yes, uh, you know they they describe the German subsequent movements were reported. Uh, in the same way, um, if he was evidently coming straight towards the barracks, uh, knocks were given on the door and everything was shut down. You know, after practice, it took about twenty-five seconds to close down, put the stove back on, and tidy up the room. Twenty-five seconds—that's that's very quick. Is extremely quick. And what what's interesting is they have developed in a very short space of time 
a very sophisticated system of escape, which, you know, was perhaps to counteract increasing sophistication of security, Mm -hmm. uh, which was developing around about this time and eventually would lead to things like microphones in the ground and that sort of stuff to listen for the sound of tunneling, which is what ultimately led to tunnels being about 25, 30 feet underground. Which is why so much shoring took place. Yeah, 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 because you don't want that coming down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you can definitely see the germ or the genesis of some very sophisticated escape systems developing yeah. within the camps here. And as I said, for anyone who is familiar with the Great Escape, which was in March 1944, we are talking about June to September 1941 here, but the similarities are enormous. And as I say, there are actually four a few like versions of this because there were four people who escaped from this tunnel yeah but all had slightly different experiences so we'll no doubt come back and look at the other ones in a later episode there was one other point that i kind of want to pick up on before sort of looking at the escape itself and yep. what have you which was um he's talking about how they worked in shifts and the number of hours that they did and you know the work was carried on for 11 hours a day but they would work in a minimum I think he said a minimum of five, minimum of five hours, they yeah. said, per, per person. Yeah, so each man on the digging party worked for a minimum of five hours a day. This consisted of one hour working the air bellows, one hour guarding the room door and pulling the trolley back from the chamber, one hour guarding the room window, one hour working on the face, and an hour in the chamber pulling the earth back from the face and passing it back to the room. That in and of itself is not really the it's not the point I was trying to pick up on here, although it's interesting to kind of hear the shift work and how yeah. they moved around and all covered different bases. And, you know, they all had multiple experience of, again, experience of escape. So yeah. they were drawing on their experience. Um, but, the, you know, they talk about how uh, they would often do effectively double shifts if there were any casualties. So if anyone was out through injury, the main, you know, he says the main reason for the casualties was that if one got... The slightest scratch, it would immediately fester and never heal. This was a feature of all German prison camps and was presumably presumably mainly caused by the extremely low diets. Now, we have discussed before about how the basic requirement was around about 1,500 calories, but a fully grown human male usually requires over 2,000. So there yeah. was a shortfall there. So this kind of reinforces and highlights the impact of diet and the importance of the Red Cross parcels that came through. And uh, that might seem like a quite small detail, but uh, Red Cross parcels played a huge part in the life of a prisoner of war. Yeah. And that is as true of those who were intimately and intricately involved in escape as it was for those who had nothing to do with it. And so it was important that those who were involved in escape didn't put risk the regular supply of Red Cross parcels. I see what you mean. So they, they weren't. They have to go out of their way to to not cause disruption to that because it would affect everyone in the in the camp. Precisely, and that's true right. of the prisoners of war, but it's also true of those who are helping the prisoners of war. Um, but, I mean, just looking at that line as well, fester and never never heal. Just that's a, just just a scratch, which. If you're digging a tunnel, has got to happen frequently. Yeah. I mean, you're literally lying in sand or rocks or soil, so yeah. it's, it's going to happen. Um, but they literally just were not getting enough calories to heal. I mentioned earlier about how there was two competing tunnels. Yes. And basically the, the reason why they were allowed to go ahead was an agreement was made with the escape committee whereby uh, they would be allowed to make their tunnel, uh, dig their tunnel, on the basis that whoever got out first, they were allowed to 
effectively amalgamate the teams. Right. Yeah. So that they were doing two parallel tunnels, um, but if they broke first, the other team was allowed to join them, essentially. Well, okay, right. Um, and so that is what happened. And the senior British officer effectively brought the leaders of the two parties together and it was decided that the parties should amalgamate. And there were three reasons for this. Uh, <coughs> the tunnel, this tunnel, uh, was, they reckoned they could get more men out um, than the latrine tunnel. Uh, the exit of the of this tunnel would be far safer place than that of the others. And in the event of a search, this tunnel was more likely to be found. And so was higher risk. So they wanted to use it so they potentially to first. Use, exactly. Right. And so that, that led to pulling together of the two teams uh, to make a team of 26. 17 from the original party and 9 from the other. Um, however, the result of that was that uh, two from their party that had been working on this tunnel... Uh, had to miss out in order to make space. Um, That's got to feel harsh if you're the person that has to stay behind for that one. It does, but it also reinforces the point I was making earlier about the military hierarchy and the power of the senior British officer and how the escape committee was acting under the power, essentially, of the senior British officer and were were working effectively within the military hierarchy. You know, it it didn't become a democracy, if you like. Yeah, that's true. Um, It wasn't, you know, they maintained the hierarchical system of the military within the camps themselves. And that is in effect put into place. Yeah. You know, you can see direct evidence of that taking place here. So they they broke on the thirteenth of September. Um, the tunnel was actually completed on the eleventh, but they decided to uh, wait a couple of days uh, for suitable conditions. Um, quite often, things like if there was a full moon, they would wait until it was until it was darker outside exactly so yeah. that it was less chance of being spotted as they broke stuff like that I'm that not makes saying, total sense it makes sense I'm not saying that was necessarily what happened here but that's the sort of thing that would happen that would yeah. cause a couple of days delay um, which in some ways was quite brave given that you know you probably at the other end at the exit of the tunnel you probably got only a couple of feet if, if even that much of soil so it could collapse. Could collapse if someone walked over it, exactly. Although, they, they've, I think we get to a point when they describe the breaking through at this end, but I like the detail. They've basically just got, they've shored it up with a piece <clears> of timber and a board that they've just chucked underneath it. Yeah. To just kind of basically hold the roof in place. Yeah, exactly. Um, which seemed to have worked. Yeah, I suppose. I think because they, they said they reached the turf level, so basically it was just grass sitting yeah. on top of a board. Yeah. But if if someone had was patrolling and happened to stand on that bit, that's, yep. that's not lasting the weight of a body. Not not for a long time. No, no. Um, might survive the weight of one one step at a time. But yeah, yeah. Um, and interestingly, and this, this is not a direct. Well, it is a direct comparison to the Great Escape, but this is less of a learning a lesson learned, shall we say? In, uh, in that they said that once they'd broken, it was necessary to crawl 30 or 40 yards before any dead ground could be re- reached. This is actually exactly what happened in the Great Escape, in that their tunnel was th- about 30 feet short of the wood uh, the right. tree line. Um, however, this is not an intentional <laughs> <laughs> lesson learned, shall we say. This this is this one, I think, probably is coincidence, <laughs> and not a very positive one. <laughs> so you're basically just accusing the Great Escape of copying this escape. Aren't yeah, you? basically. Yeah. I mean, the copyright should have, yeah, yeah, pretty much, absolute. But it worked. Yeah, you know, we are looking at a successful escape after all. Um, 
So initially he travelled with a Captain O'Sullivan. Yeah, so they, they travelled part of the way together, but they did ultimately part ways, but they were both successful in oh. get, in, in escaping. What what it what one of the points I, I found quite interesting was, and again this comes back to the point about learning from previous escapes, is in of of all the people that he personally had known that had escaped and made attempts for Switzerland. Um, he says, with one exception, everyone who tried to take the direct route from Beberach to Switzerland had been caught. And so in actual fact, they decide to take the long route. So they, you know, Beberach to Switzerland is, um, in a roughly direct line, is only about 90 kilometres. It's not far at all. It's not far at all. But the route that they took is actually closer to 135 plus kilometres. So they... The, in essence, Biberach to uh, Switzerland is, is due south, basically. Yeah. But for the first day, they actually went north. Right. And the point was that, you know, if, if you're a German guard at Biberach and you know that you've got some escapees, you're going to look south first. Yeah, of course you are. Um, because you know that that's where they're going to be. You know, yeah. It's very unlikely that if you're 90 kilometres from the Swiss border, you're going to head towards France, Belgium, Holland, Poland, Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, you're going to make for Switzerland. Yeah. That is the direct line. You're going to take the shortest possible route there. Yeah, of course. And so it was actually quite smart to kind of decide to go north and sort of, there may have been some searches in that direction, but a lot less than due south. So although, (coughs) you know, they took a much longer route, it probably worked out for them. Um, But I, I do want to quickly talk, you know, in the report he talks about the provisions and the materials that he took with him. So he talks about foods, you know, taking chocolate, cheese, biscuits, um, and a mixture of oatmeal and glucose. Uh, again, chocolate was only available via the Red Cross parcels. Mm-hmm. It's coming back to that. Yep. Uh, which, uh, okay, we don't think of it as a particularly healthy um, option now when we've got a wide variety of diet, yeah. dietary options. Uh, but when you're on a daily basis, 500 calories short of your required intake, something like chocolate is actually quite good. Yeah, absolutely. It'll give you the calories you need in a moment for yeah. when you're essentially starving. Yes, basically. You're you are very slowly starving. Yeah. You're getting some food, so you're not... Yeah, you're not without food, yeah. but you're, you're, you're not reaching your body's requirements for, for, need for, for calories. It, exactly. But uh, one of the key points actually comes here when he talks about maps and compasses. So he talks about having um, a map, uh, he says one very indifferent map, uh, giving towns, rivers and railways, and then one map of the Schaffhausen area, which is the part of Switzerland that uh, a lot of escapees entered. Uh, Switzerland via it was a, ah. it was a well known part of the border in which right. escapees would enter Switzerland, and he talks about how this map was sent out from the United Kingdom. Equally, uh, for the compass, a magnetized he, he describes it as having a magnetized needle that was sent from the UK as well. Yeah, um, which is a fairly innocuous uh, reference made at the bottom of a page on an on an escape report, but in that in actual fact. These two small little sentences uh, is proof that escape assistance was being sent into camps directly from the UK. Yeah. And again, coming back to the Red Cross parcel point, it was very important that they didn't send it in using Red Cross parcels. And so they never used the Red Cross parcels as a source of smuggling. 
uh, of escape contraband. They always find other routes in, whether that was through parcels or letters or what have you. Yeah. They always find other ways. They never use the Red Cross parcel. Because they didn't want to risk the... Didn't want to risk losing that source right. of um, food, of sustenance, whatever it was. You know, they were crucial to keeping these prisoners of war alive. And even more importantly, from the from the perspective of the escapers, not just alive, but also with enough energy to actually attempt escape and to take food with them on an escape. They needed these sources of of the Red Cross parcels. But as I said, you know, these reports provide absolute definite evidence that escape assistance was being sent into the camps. Yeah, for from sure. The yeah. UK. Um, so a- after describing the escape and what have you, he goes into. He gives a summary of the journey, but it's it's quite a dry. <laughs> and it's kind of very brief, just sort of day by day, blow by blow, isn't it? Of yeah, just like... it's, it's not the most fascinating of reads. He just kind of says, I walked from this point to this point and then, uh, you know, turned west and, head, and headed past the, the forest yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the only real point of, or one or two points of interest that come up is uh, having used woods in particular as a hiding point. He complains that a lot of the woods in one particular district were apple orchards. Mm-hmm. But equally, when he says that he needs to boost his food uh, supply, he said that uh, the food that I took with me was supplemented with apples, that which we found growing in profusion everywhere. Now, it is September, so that is kind of apple scrumping season. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... it's it's a b- little bit of a mixed blessing in that he gets food from the apples, but then the apple orchards weren't exactly great for... They're not the easiest to hide in. Not really, no. Um, they didn't provide great cover. Um, so, eventually after about a week, in fact, yes, after a week on the 20th, uh, he actually parts company with O'Sullivan, which on on the surface kind of sounds like they had a, a little bit of a parting of ways yes. shall we say the, yeah, yeah. a disagreement but in actual fact it seems to have been fairly well tempered you yeah. know es- essentially in the initial escape uh, Michael Duncan seems to have injured his uh, leg yeah he, he said he, f- he fell into a ditch or something didn't he? he yeah exactly and injured his knee and so was holding up both himself and O'Sullivan and he basically told O'Sullivan to you're fine mate you don't don't wait for me. Yeah, basically. don't don't wait for me. I'll make my own way. You know, I must admit, you know, once once you've got kind of got injured and you're on the run, it's not really a great situation. So kind of fair play to him for yeah. actually carrying on for another week and getting getting back. And actually, it seems he insisted as well, like to send O'Sullivan away. He was just like, yeah, he he seemed to sort of push the moment of like, at least from his own account here. You know, yes, he, he, yeah, you know, he seems to sort of be the one who is saying, look, just go. Because I don't want to hold you up, and then he still carries on on his own. Yeah, and he, you know, he seems to use the, uh, he seems to walk along the railway lines, uh, using the path beside the tracks, um, yeah. which he actually describes as quite easy and was quite useful because he didn't see a single person between sort of ten o'clock at night and four thirty in the morning, which you know gives you a good solid six and a half hours of walking time. Yeah, in which you've got you see no one whatsoever. Even with an injury, that's that means you're covering distance. Yeah, you'll cover a fair amount of distance in that. Um, but there was one line I really liked in his description because it could have been a much bigger deal than it apparently was. Uh, on the night of the sixteenth and seventeenth of September, it says soon after starting, we were spotted by a civilian on a bicycle and we had to run. And then that's basically that's it. it. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's just like that could have really led to his capture. But he's just like, we got spotted, had to run, and then we later discover that he's also injured. Yeah, 
So that probably was something that was very difficult. And he was just like, yeah, we had to run. It's, it was fine, though. Yeah, but they outpaced the guy in the back. Yeah. So well done. You yeah. know. I mean, I'm guessing it wasn't your Bradley Wiggins or anything. No, like but I just I just like that attitude within his telling of it. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, we nearly got caught there. Yeah, it was all right. He's very matter of fact. Yeah. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of embellishment or... No. Um, storytelling or anything like that, which given that he's an advertising <laughs> manager... That's very true. <laughs> you know, if you just read his report, you'd think he was a you know a doctor or an engineer or, you know, something very scientific. Someone who very, deals just with facts. Yeah, deals just with facts and, you know, do- doesn't stray from, you know, is not by nature a storyteller. Yeah. And yet this guy's an advertising <laughs> manager, you know. Surely... I'm not saying that you'd make stuff up or embellish it, but you've got to you've got to tell a story in yeah, advertising. Exactly, and there, there's there's not a great deal of that. You know, you, you know, how did he get spotted by the guy in the bike? How did they get away? Did, you know, what happened? In between? I have no idea. Just said we got spotted. We had to run. Yeah, exactly. You know, fair play. You know, yeah. so maybe he was the sole person in advertising that had no imagination. But at least you can trust what he says. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Um, there, wa- there was one or two other points that I wanted to uh, pick up on. And in actual fact, on the twen- night of the 22nd, 23rd, and then 23rd, 24th of September, um, he on the first night he talks about uh, coming across a concrete factory, I think it was. Uh, cement factory, cement sorry. Factory, a yeah. cement factory, a large cement factory. And then... Uh, which was located close to uh, uh, an autobahn that was under construction, so they were creating concrete out, um, for the autobahn. Yeah. And the location and direction of the autobahn, which was being built at the time. And then on the second night, uh, he talks about f- uh, coming across a landing ground for airplanes surrounded by red lights and, you know, ba- basically an aerodrome. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is both of these facts would... Uh, are intelligence. You know, this is intelligence that would have been drawn out of, uh, you know, once these escapers uh, returned to the United right. Kingdom, every single one of them was interrogated for information on, on the escape, on experience uh, during the escape, and on any information that they may have spotted. That's, I mean, that's how these reports were written up. Yeah. These are, in effect, intelligence reports. And so the location of a, of a cement and concrete factory and an autobahn and an aerodrome is all intelligence that the military uh, services would have been interested in discovering. And he would have been able to pinpoint these... Especially a man as detailed as he is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so I was just really interested that he went, you know, they sort of drilled right down into this uh, intelligence and really kind of got some uh, detail on the source of intelligence. Uh, that's I didn't even consider that, but that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. They would have been able to go. Okay, where was where were you there? Bam, location on the map. Fill in more details of stuff they didn't know before. Yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a couple of days, weeks, or even months later, that there was a, a cement factory in the Bloomberg area that was um, bombed to pieces. It's very true. Um, yeah, I haven't checked the files. I haven't checked the <laughs> records, but it's. It, it's a possibility, yeah, and that is in essence how the, you know how it worked. You know that that was one of the reasons why they were interrogated when they came back was so that they could certifiably identify the locations of points of interest. Yeah, equally they they were interested, and in, and some of these escapees were able to provide information on previous bombing raids. You know, if they were traveling through a major uh, transport 
uh, junction. Uh, you know, I don't know, a, ma- a major city or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They might be able to say, oh yes, we saw the docks were bombed to pieces or um, you, so mi- can... you, you missed by a mile, but yeah. you, you got the railway tracks or whatever you know they're able to so get they can some report feedback. successful or non-successful hits report and stuff like on, that on uh. bombing efforts that sort of thing um so suppose we should probably get to the point whereby they actually enter uh switzerland and he, he, yeah. des- he describes the um frontier um or to be more accurate he actually describes the security system around the frontier um he talks about how the road was patrolled about every quarter of an hour by two motorcyclists operate, operating in opposite directions on the same road was a patrol of three men on ordinary bicycles without lights who passed every hour so it's actually fairly regular yeah that's pretty regular and they're all going in opposite directions so you know as as much as it may have been you know every 50 minutes i don't know does that make it every seven and a half minutes uh yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand necessarily whether they just conveniently passed at the same time or or are they individually on 15-minute schedules, so that means potentially it is seven and a half minutes. In some ways, either way, it's still pretty regular. Yeah. There, there would have been guards standing along the frontier yeah. as well, you know, armed guards along the frontier. And uh, he also talks about how there were dogs at uh, railway level, level crossings and that sort of thing. So very high level of security along the frontier. Yes. So it wasn't easy, but um, yeah, I mean, he, he talks about uh, hiding behind a hedge. I saw a motorcyclist with lights go past on the part of three cyclists. After which, the road being clear, I crossed and came to the single track railway. He could see the guard at the level crossing, so he crossed 300 yards uh, further down the track. And then later on, he, he describes how the river Vutach, I am again presu- <laughs> pre- presuming pronunciation, uh, was the f- effectively the final obstacle for him to cross. Yes. But he, he says it was only about 20 feet across and 2 feet 6 inches deep. And so easily affordable. I do like how he specifically knows how deep it is. As Very well. specific. He's such a detail-oriented man. Yeah, and he, even when describing the tunnel and and what have you, um, what is it he says? It oh yeah, was, his breakdown of the tunnel is is great. Is, it, is great. It's fantastic. You know what was it? The dimensions of the tunnel. The tunnel was 145 feet long, one foot nine inches wide, and one foot six inches high. Very specific. Super specific. Um, so. Having crossed this river, uh, he then found himself in Schleitheim. Schleitheim. I think that's your best pronunciation yet. I, I think that's probably, hopefully, the most accurate yet. <laughs> um, which he says he reached at round about one in the morning on the 27th of September, 1941. Um, and so he he basically walked into this town, village, uh, knocked on the door and uh, was uh, received by the inhabitants and taken to the local police. Which fairly was fairly standard to take them to the local police. It yeah. wasn't, you know, they weren't arrested on site or anything like that. Yeah, it was yeah. just kind of um, taking them to a point of local authority, I suppose, to process them. Yeah. Uh, Switzerland, of course, being neutral. Um, and so, effectively, they, this, this initial escape took him two weeks he escaped on the 13th of september and reached switzerland on the 27th of september so he was on the run exactly two weeks uh, however while this report stops in switzerland uh, his escape does not and the book itself actually uh, gives uh, his book underground from posen uh, gives further detail on the post switzerland 
part of the escape. Right. And um, having read the book, I'm <laughs> able to fill in some details. Okay. Um, and he actually, he follows a similar path that many others were to follow and have kind of made reference to um, elsewhere, which is that he he, tend, he hung around Switzerland for quite a while um, before being linked up by the British authorities with an escape line. Um, however, before I get there, I wanted to read some, uh, read out some detail, uh, which from his book, where, whereby on the on his point of arrival in Switzerland, he he describes himself when he was given a razor to go and clean himself up and what have you. Right. My face was black with lichen from the trees and from it stared a pair of sunken bloodshot eyes i had a week's growth of beard and my hair was matted and full of sticks which, which to me sounds almost like a horror horror movie interpretation of wurzel gummage <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh from schleitheim you know he cleaned himself up and from schleitheim which small border village uh, he was taken to Sch- schaffhausen itself where he was actually reunited with o'sullivan uh, who had also successfully made his way uh, to Switzerland. I'm glad they poked back up again. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, he went to... He, he was taken to Bern, the capital, and delivered uh, to the British military attaché, where he was joined by Hugh Woolett and Angus Rowan Hamilton, uh, who were the other two successful escapers. Right, okay. Um, from, from the same group. From the same group, uh, from nice. the 26. So this makes up the four yep. of Duncan, O'Sullivan, Woolett and Rowan Hamilton. Uh, who were from this escape tunnel. I think I'm right in saying that Woolett was one of the uh, group from the other tunnel that was amalgamated in. Right, okay. Uh, I think it was him that was uh, brought into the overall group. Yeah. So he, he was one of the other ones. They ended up staying in Bern for several months, actually, while the British authorities arranged his onward journey and... Um, there were a number of escape lines running through occupied Europe at this time, and some of them were run by uh, British intelligence, some of them were just supported by British intelligence and ran almost independently, but were partly financed or just generally supported by British intelligence. And so uh, the British authorities were able to link up escapees like michael duncan with these escape lines and uh the escape lines were effectively to take them to a point of neutrality from which they could make an exit point right okay because although switzerland was neutral there's no exit point yeah exactly um so you had to there was always an onward journey and it's not reported in the in this it's not recorded in this report because essentially it was this intelligence organization that were behind the onward journey. So they already knew what okay. uh, the the route and direction yeah. and what have you. He was already under their responsibility, if you like. And so um, from one, once the British authorities had arranged the onward journey to take them through occupied France into uh, Spain and onwards... Um, he was sent to Geneva, given some Czech ID cards and taken to a cemetery in Geneva and told to crawl under the wire to France. <laughs> um, not the most sophisticated of routes, no. but um, it worked. Uh, once in France, uh, from there they joined an escape line, uh, taking them to Marseille, and then from Marseille across the Pyrenees to Barcelona, and then down to Gibraltar from where they arrived in Plymouth four days later. Uh, nearly nine months after the initial escape, so uh, in June 1942, he eventually got back to the UK. 
Um, so, you know, the escape line would take, it would take some time. Uh, so, so he escaped and was on the run for two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. Before he got to relative safety. Yep, in Switzerland. In Switzerland, and then was nine months before he got back to the UK. Precisely, yeah. Wow, that's a long time. So, you know, he was in Switzerland until, I think, early 42, uh, if not late 41, early 42, and then it would have taken roughly six months for him to travel along the escape line. Um, and what what is interesting, and I've said before, I want to do episodes on escape lines and what have you. Yeah, uh, there was actually a betrayal on this line, Ooh. and he actually links up with them the day after the betrayal. So in his book, he talks about how people are reacting to it, and wow, you know. Uh, you know the first person they meet up with is literally in tears because they've lost so-and-so and what have you. And it's very interesting how he talks about in the book uh, the aftermath of the betrayal and um, what have you. And That's the kind of thing that if you're in that situation, you're finally in that place on that trail. You don't... I mean, obviously no one expects a betrayal. That's part of the definition of it. Yeah. But still, you would never think that that would happen there given what everyone's already been through to get to that position yeah and you think you're with you know once you're plugged into the escape line you're probably under relative safety yeah um, okay you've just left neutral switzerland but you know you're relatively safe because you've been linked up with them by the authorities and what have you and you literally link up with them on the day after the betrayal has taken place and the gestapo rounded up members of of the line and what have you and oh. um, yeah that's horrible. Yeah. Um, however, that that was the escape of Lieutenant Michael G. Don't know what the G stands for. Uh, Duncan. Um, so what an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a bit a very very sophisticated escape actually, and you know as I've said, a strong precursor of a very famous escape <laughs> that was to come later. Um, I have my suspicions that it's not coincident, but I'm sure we can discuss that another time. Okay, um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.